Hi, I'm Pastor Colin Smith, Senior Pastor of The Orchard. We're a church that loves the Bible, and this podcast features sermons from pastors at each of our six locations. Our prayer is that these messages will help root you in the Word of God, nourish you in the Gospel of Christ, and help you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Here's today's message. God, you say in your Word, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And so God, as we come before your scriptures today, we pray that wherever we are, that this would be our response, that we would indeed listen, incline our ears to what are indeed the words of your own mouth. We love you. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite apps on my phone is called Day One. Uh, Day one is basically just an electronic uh, journal. And although I primarily use day one to chronicle special events and sweet times as a family, I sometimes use it as a sort of travel journal. For instance, Sarah and I just recently returned from a wonderful vacation in Florida. We dropped our three kids off with grandpa and grandma in Minnesota and zipped away to sandy beaches and 90 degree weather which is feeling extra cruel that we are not still there today, this morning. But while we were there, of course, I kept up with day one. I wanted to record and remember our traveling adventures. For instance, I'm going to give you a peek into it. For October 13th, I wrote down that we got 50% off our first meal eating out. Now that's worthy of a journal entry, right? Or October 15th, that we got actually quite accidentally a private boat tour and enjoyed together a sunset on the water. The day one helped me to chronicle what we did when we traveled to Florida. We held hands, we enjoyed the beach, we ate pizza, and we slept past six in the morning. It was glorious. A very good trip. Now, last weekend, we began our journey through the book of Numbers, one of the most, I think, often overlooked and frequently skipped books of the Bible, filled with laws and lists, job descriptions, and geographic data. For many, Numbers is quite a hard book to get through. But we said last weekend, for those who are willing to strap on their boots and dig in, there are riches in here waiting to be found. Uh, We said that this book is really a record of Israel's journey to a place called Canaan. And as such, the whole book of Numbers really in a lot of ways reads a bit like a travel journal. Kind of like an ancient day one, chronicling their pilgrimage to the fresh and fertile land that God had promised to them. Just one year before the start of Numbers, Israel had been miraculously freed from slavery in the land of Egypt. And although it had been reserved for them, they were at this point not yet living in the land of Canaan. At this point in the Bible story, Israel was Out of bondage, but still on their way to paradise. They were, we've said, between those two worlds. Which I think, friends, is a very accurate description of the Christian life. 
Uh, we said last time that like Israel, we are between two worlds too. Through faith in Jesus, the Bible says, we have been freed from slavery to our sin. But, of course, we are not yet living in the glory of heaven. On account of our faith in Jesus Christ, we too are traveling. We are on our way to a promised better country. Which, of course, then makes the book of Numbers very relevant and very applicable to us today. Last weekend, we broke ground in chapters 1 and 2, and today we're going to jump all the way to chapters 10 and 11. But before we do that, let me just catch you up on all that's recorded in between. In chapters 3 through 8 of the book of Numbers are a number of special instructions that God gave to his people as they sort of prepared to pack up and head out to Canaan, to the promised land. There is in those chapters a bunch of duties and directives for how they were supposed to travel and how they were frankly supposed to live with and treat each other on the way. And then in chapter 9, the Bible recounts Israel's celebration of the Passover. Now the Passover, you'll remember, was the meal that Israel ate just before they were rescued from, just before they left the land of Egypt, huddled in their houses with the blood of the lamb painted on their doorposts so that the judgment of God, the final plague of his on Egypt would pass over his people. And it's so cool here, just before they leave Sinai, they celebrate God's deliverance and his grace again, which leads us then to chapter 10. And if you haven't already, I want your Bibles open with me there. Look with me at verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, so just 19 days after the census of chapters 1 and 2, that's all that's passed between chapter 1 and now. On the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. That's the cloud, you'll remember, of God's presence, right, in the midst of his people. And the people of Israel, verse 12, look at this, set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. Now we got to pause here for just a minute because this is a hugely important moment for the people of Israel. Hugely important. It has been at this point almost 700 years since God had first promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. And here is Israel finally setting out, at last beginning their journey to the land of blessing and rest, of safety and security, of abundance and plenty, a land, the Bible says, that was flowing with milk and with honey. 700 years. And they're finally on their way. Finally. It's a hugely important moment. It's a joyous day for Israel. It's a glorious day. Each of their steps in the sand is a fulfilled promise. It's a step closer to home, a step closer to paradise. Life for Israel just could not be better, right? Wrong. Look at the first thing the Bible says happens after they head out, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Excuse me, what? Misfortunes? 
I mean, these are people swimming in blessings. I mean, God had freed them from Egypt. He'd driven them through the middle of the Red Sea. He'd given them 10 commandments. We saw just last weekend how he had grown them and strengthened them, how he dwelt among them and protected them. He's leading them right now into a wonderful land of gifts and promised rest, misfortunes. Well, they've been under God's hand of blessing. And yet they complain directly against him in the hearing of the Lord, verse 1 says, about what they see as their, note the plural, misfortunes. According to Numbers 9, can you imagine this? It's only been three days since they set out. That's it, three days. And already, these blessed people have very quickly devolved into a grumbling people. A grumbling people. This is the first picture that is really painted on the canvas of Numbers in chapter 11. People swimming in blessing and yet quick to complain. But I think we ought to say that this is a picture in Numbers 11 that very, very quickly turns into a mirror. Right? Because before we get too hard on Israel, don't you see yourself in them? Christian brothers and sisters, very much like them, we are people who have been richly blessed too. Blessed in Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing. And yet we too are so quick to grumble and to gripe, aren't we? Freed from slavery to our sin, promised an inheritance in glory, strengthened and protected, indwelt and supported, loved and secured. That's us, Christian brothers and sisters, and yet, despite it all, still have the tendency, nay, the audacity, to, like Israel, look toward heaven with a suspicious eye and complain against God with entitled lips. But friends, at its bottom, this is what complaining really is. Clearly illustrated here in the life of Israel, complaining is, look, boiled down at its foundation, finding fault with God. That's what complaining is. Finding fault with God. Whether it is expressed out loud or whether it is harbored in the heart, it is disparaging his gifts and it is doubting his goodness. Complaining is the subtle belief or the outright accusation that God's intentions are not good and that his ways are not fair. I am not yet married, and that's not fair. I am steeped in suffering, and that's not fair. I don't have the stuff that I want. I don't have the energy that I need. I don't get the thanks I deserve. I haven't had what I've wished for, and I've been given what I never wanted. And God, it is your fault. We may not say that stuff out loud. But this is what lurks at the bottom 
of every single one of our complaints that God has in some way done you wrong and not been good. Now, I think we need to make a a brief caveat here. This does not mean, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that we can't call life like it is. I want you to hear me when I say this. It is not complaining, for example, to truthfully describe the way that things are. To say something like, cancer is hard. That's just the truth. To say something like, a strained relationship is difficult. When in the valley, I just want you to know it is okay to acknowledge this is dark. The Christian people are not called to sort of paint fake smiles over real frowns. Now we can candidly acknowledge the effects of sin and the hardships that come with it simply for what they are. We're allowed to do that. But what's happening here in Numbers 11, and what I suspect happens so often in our hearts, and I'll say it happens in my heart, is not a truthful description, an accurate estimation of the way things are. It is a critique of God for the way things are. That is complaining. And the difference between those two things is very important. As a pastor, I've been taught in preaching in my seminary courses and even in my training here at the Orchard, to ask of any given biblical text that we're studying, to ask this question, what does this particular passage say that no other passage does? You know, in other words, what what unique message does God have for his people that we could bring out from here? And you know, thinking back on all my years in church, I'm not sure I ever heard a sermon on complaining. But that's the unique focus here. In the life of Israel, we're given a clear picture of what grumbling really is. And look, it's for the good of our Christian life that God reveals to us here in his word four qualities of grumbling's true and dangerous nature. This will be for our good, friends. Four qualities of grumbling's true and dangerous nature. Nature. First, our passage shows us very helpfully that complaining is sin. That complaining is sin. Look again at Numbers 11 and verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, how does he respond? Look at this. His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. If you skip just a few verses later to verse 10, the Bible tells us that as Israel was weeping and wailing, you can see it there, the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Friends, the Bible is quite clear. Even complaining provokes God's anger. Now, this is very important for us to understand because we tend to look at passages like this and think that God's reaction here is maybe just a bit strong for what seems to be like relatively little an offense. But friends, the problem is not that God's reaction is too strong. It is that we think far too little of the offense. I've noticed this in my own heart. How easy it is to treat grumbling and complaining as a sort of respectable sin. 
You know, not that big of a deal. Oftentimes we dress it up as concern or venting or just being honest when most of the time in reality it is a veiled shot at the goodness of God and the way that he's running things. It's complaining. It's just, it's just become so prevalent, hasn't it, in our friend groups and on our Facebook pages and in our culture at large and it is so hardwired into our own habits that it barely makes a blip on our radar anymore. We think too little of the offense. But this is why Numbers 11 is so uniquely helpful to us. The Bible reminds us that complaining is not a neutral activity. It's wrong. Since it is at its foundation finding fault with God, it is a serious offense against God. And because it is a serious offense against God, it rightly provokes the anger of God. His reaction to Israel in our text clears up any confusion or misconceptions that we might have. Grumbling is sin. That is its true and dangerous nature. It is an activity not to be practiced and entertained, but avoided and confessed. Very helpful, Numbers 11. Showing us the true and dangerous nature of complaining, that it is sin. But second, our passage also shows us that complaining is not just sin, it is also contagious got to know this. Complaining is contagious. In Numbers 11, there are actually two separate instances of Israel grumbling against God. And these won't be, these won't be the only two in the book of Numbers. Now, the first instance is there in verses 1 through 3, which results, as we read, in God's anger-consuming part of the camp. But then Israel complains again, starts again in verse 4. I want you to look there with me. Now the rabble, verse 4 says, that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Now notice here that there are two different groups of people. There are Israel, right? And then our text says, the rabble. Israel. And the rabble, two different groups of people. Now, whether this rabble was a pocket of Israelite troublemakers or whether they were an outside group of agitators, our text is clear. The grumbling of one infected the other. Verse 4 says, did you notice this? The people of Israel also wept. In other words, they were caught up in the complaints of the rabble. And then soon after joined themselves in their criticisms. They saw other people wailing and before long they took up their own weeping. Now we've experienced the same exact thing, haven't we? I mean, we can identify with Israel in this case. I mean, we find our own tongue just a bit more loose when someone else is airing their own complaints. It's easy to go along with. Why? Because it's the natural posture of the human heart. Grumbling is quickly caught because grumbling is naturally wrought in our sinful human nature. So friends, here is a very practical application. Be careful of the people that you are around. Be aware of the influence that they're having on your life. Make frequent checks on the health of your own heart. Carefully evaluate what's coming out of your own mouth. Remember your natural vulnerability and take steps to bundle up against catching the cold of complaint. We see with Israel, complaining is contagious. It's sin and it is contagious. Third, we see here in the Bible, That complaining is irrational. 
It is irrational. Look again, beginning at verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Now look at what they say. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. And then they just read down the menu. The cucumbers. Ah, the melons. The leeks. The onions. And the garlic. I want you to see this for what it is. Israel is daydreaming about Egypt. That's all that's going on here. Israel is daydreaming about Egypt. Now, this is insane. I mean, think about it. Egypt was for Israel, the book of Exodus records for us, a land of affliction and heavy burdens. It was a land of violent oppression and ruthless slavery. But the land of Canaan, the land to which they were headed, the land that God had promised to them was a place instead of rest and safety and joy and abundance. And yet here in Numbers 11, whipped up into grumbling, Israel begins to confuse Egypt with Canaan. They're describing the land of slavery as if it's the land of promise. They say to each other, oh, don't you remember the food of Egypt? Oh, man. And not one person is saying, yeah, but do you remember the whips of Egypt? They affectionately recall eating all these wonderful foods, but they forget that there they were in fact slaves Those meals in Egypt were, as one commentator says, hardly for free. The cost of every morsel was literally the sweat of their brow, the breaking of their bones, and the crack of the whip. Here in Numbers 11, Israel has become completely irrational. Stirred up and grumbling, they have prettied up their past slavery. It's insane. But they've also downplayed their present blessings. They've not only prettied up their past slavery, they've downplayed their present blessings. They not only remember Egypt as better than it really was, they ridicule God's gifts as less than they really were. Look at the end of verse 6. But now they say our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now this manna, It's mentioned here was the food that God had miraculously provided for Israel since their exit from Egypt. After their escape, God said to them in Exodus 16, he said, behold, I love this. I'm about to rain bread from heaven down on you. That's the language of the text. And then God did. There was waiting on the ground six out of seven days. Every single week, the Bible says a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, which tasted like, our text says, cakes. Baked with oil. Israel didn't have to work for any of it. But here in Numbers, they'd grown sick of it. So they complained against God about it. They have become completely irrational. They've prettied up their past slavery. And then they've downplayed their present blessings. You know what, friends? This is the effect That over time, grumbling will have on you and on me. The exact effect it will have on you and me. It will, over time, warp the way that you see the Christian life. 
and it will distort the way in which you see God himself. Before long, it will have you wondering if the life from which God has freed you was really all that bad. And before long, it will have you believing that the gifts he's provided for you aren't all that great. It will cloud your vision. It will distort the truth. It will make you, like Israel, completely irrational. But lastly, the Bible shows us as complaining's true and dangerous nature that it is also pervasive. It is pervasive. I've just read how Israel really as a nation was caught up in it. But look with me at Numbers 11 and verse 10. As the people grumble, Moses was displeased. And just follow along with me beginning at verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight? You lay the burden of all this people on me. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? And you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers. Where am I supposed to get meat to give to all these people? They weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. Well, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you, God, will treat me like this, kill me at once. Can you hear that? Even Moses the man whom God used to set Israel free, the man with whom God spoke face to face, the man whom God had appointed to lead his people, even Moses is complaining. Instead of humbly asking God for help, he accuses God for, our text says, dealing ill with him. You see, that's just him finding fault. These people are too much. I'm too weak. You've not helped, so kill me. What we see here, friends, is that complaining does not only infect one particular kind of person. It knows no bias. You will find grumbling among the rich and among the poor. You'll find grumbling in kids and in adults. You'll find it in the classroom and in the cubicle. You'll find it, of course, in the suburbs and the city. You'll find it in the Western Hemisphere, just as you'll find it in the Eastern Hemisphere. You will find it as here in Israel and even in their wonderful leader, Moses. So brothers and sisters, here's an application for us drawn right from the text. We've got to be on our guard against this. Like Moses, you and I are not exempt from falling into this trap. See, we are very good at noticing the faults of other people while remaining just sort of oblivious to our own. But none of us on our journey home to heaven are beyond grumblings, pervasive reach. Isn't this helpful? I've been so helped by Numbers 11 this week. This is complaining's true and dangerous nature, shown to us here by the picture of God's people Israel. It is a sin that provokes the anger of God. It is a contagion that spreads easily among people. It is an activity that warps the truth, and it is an infection that knows no bias. So it's so helpful about our passage today. Through the example of Israel... We are made soberly aware of the state of our own human heart. It's really helpful. We're encouraged to be on our guard against this particular sin. And this actually helps us in our desire to live the faithful, a faithful Christian life. This is the first picture 
painted on the canvas of Numbers 11, the picture of a grumbling people. But set as its contrast is a second picture, and that is the picture of a very good God. A grumbling people and a good God. A God who is first, as we see here, gracious in his gifts. I want you to see how God responds to Moses' Moses's accusation, to his complaining, beginning there in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and let them take their stand there with you. Verse 17, and I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and look at this, they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. God will, our text is saying, raise up men to help Moses bear the burden of the people. And then God will equip those men through the giving of his own Holy Spirit. Isn't this a wonderful picture of God's goodness? It is a wonderful picture of God's grace. Moses was thankless, but in response, God is generous. Moses deserved punishment. What he did was sin. But according to God's sovereign discretion, he showed Moses mercy. Which is the exact gift that you, Christian brother, sister, have received too. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. So while you and I were stuck in rebellion and sin, while we were liars, and cheaters, and lusters, idolaters, while we were grumblers and complainers. God gave His only Son to die for all of our sin. He gave Jesus, who bore the whole of our sinful burden on the cross, and then gave to all of His people, not just a section of them, the fullness of His indwelling Spirit. Through his death and resurrection, he has freed us from sin's complaining power and strengthened us with his helper, that is the Holy Spirit. Despite our sin against him, he showed us grace. He extended to us mercy. We didn't deserve any of it. but That's one of the reasons why we call God good. It is because he is generous, gracious in his gifts. But he is also a God who is just in his punishments. We ought not miss this. He is gracious in his gifts, but he is just in his punishments. Look at how he responds to Israel's grumbling beginning there in verse 18. He says to Moses, and say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. You shall eat meat for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat for it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Verse 19, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days. Verse 20, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Then skip to verse 31, which tells us that God indeed then made good on his word. He sent a wind that the Bible says brought quail 
quail from the sea and let them fall beside Israel's camp. Then verse 33 says that while its meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Later in Psalm 106, looking back on this event, the Bible says God gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. What's happening here in Numbers 11 is God giving up Israel to their own rebellious choices. Their punishment for their sin is to receive what they asked for. God used what they sinfully craved to then deliver his just and fair and right punishment against their sin. And though it does not look like it here too, church, I don't want you to miss this, is actually a picture of God's goodness. For how could we call God good if he did not punish sin? If he sort of winked at evil, if he ignored wickedness, if he called that which was wrong right, and if he allowed rebellion and disobedience to go unchecked, it is precisely because God is good that he punishes sin. And this is why Christians today can look out on a crooked and an unjust world and not lose heart. It's because we know that no piece of unpardoned sin will go unpunished. We know the scales will be set right one day. One day all evil will be properly judged and every wrong will be made right. This is a picture of a very good God. A God who is, the Bible says, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's both. This is, and this is why he is good. Without either attribute compromising the other, he is both gracious in his gifts and just in his punishments. Which then brings us as we close today what I think is a very important question that really lies beneath the surface of the whole of this passage. And the question is this, how is it then that sinners can receive the gift of God's grace like Moses, even though they deserve the penalties of God's punishment like Israel? That's the big question, isn't it? How can those who are guilty in sin enjoy his mercy instead of perishing beneath his judgment. In light of these two contrasting pictures of Numbers 11, how can a grumbling people be made right with their God? That's the question. Of course, friends, there's only one answer to that question, and his name is Jesus. The Bible says that at the cross of Christ is the clearest display of both God's mercy and God's judgment. In the death of Jesus, the punishment for our sin was poured out, not on us, but on Him, so that the grace of God would then be extended to us, to you, to me. 
in Jesus and only Jesus. It is him who makes it possible for us to then receive the gift of salvation even though we deserve condemnation. Friends, we cannot say this or rejoice in this enough. Jesus is and has always been the only hope for sinful people. He is the only one who can, unbelieving friend, let me appeal to you today. He is the only one who can save you from your right punishment in hell and grant to you an undeserved promise of heaven. And he is the only one who has, Christian brother, sister, let me speak to you today, freed you from your sin and then given you the gift of his spirit. Through faith, Jesus is the one who reconciles guilty grumblers their good God. So that one day, when all of his people are no longer between two worlds, so that one day when all of his people have finally passed into the paradise and glory of heaven, have finally been welcomed into the presence of God, we will there not be found complaining in his hearing. We will be found worshiping at his throne. No longer grumbling, but grateful. No longer complaining about our earthly misfortunes, but overwhelmingly thankful for what is our heavenly reward. A reward that belongs to us only because by faith we belong to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that in some you would stir up and draw out belief in your Son, Jesus Christ, who have not believed yet. God, we ask today that you would help us to proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ for those who have believed in him. And Father, as your people, we pray above all that you would help us to treasure the gift of your grace, the gift of Jesus Christ, our substitute, bearing our sins' punishment so that we might know what it is to be welcomed into your family, forgiven of our sin, fully pardoned, and welcomed then into the glory of heaven. We confess our sin in this and so many other areas, God, but we thank you that you are one who does not wink at it, but who has provided a substitute for it, and one who then extends grace and mercy to us. We love you. We cannot say that we are thankful for you enough. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said together, amen. Thank you for listening to the Orchard Sermon Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please subscribe, become a regular listener, and share the link with others. And if you're in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, we'd love to welcome you as our guest at one of the Orchard's six locations. For more information, go to theorchard.church. That's theorchard.church.